You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Melissa Matten. Frederick Matten were from Sligo and had moved to England in 1969. They married and had ten children. Melissa, their youngest, was born on the 10th of March 1992, nearly exactly two years after her older sister and the ninth Matten child, Liana. The family had their ups and downs, and two of the Matten children had been placed on the Child Protection Register in the UK, which safeguards children deemed at risk by the local authorities, and three of the kids had at some point been in foster care, although one of these days was only overnight. The family often visited home in Sligo, and had actually returned home to live once before for a number of years in the 80s. But when Mary Mahon's father died in 2005, she returned home and decided that she wanted to stay. Mary thought that Sligo would be a far better environment for the girls to grow up in, and she was particularly worried about what she perceived as the growing threat of terrorism in London. She asked her husband to come home and to bring the younger children with them. So the Mattons moved back to Sligo with Liana, Melissa, and their 19-year-old Yvonne, and moved to the Rathbrowan Park estate. Liana and Melissa made friends on the road and in school. Two of their friends were Samantha and Heidi Dunbar, who lived in Number 64 Rathbrown Park. They were also newly arrived from the UK. They had an older sister, too, Shirley, who was 15. Samantha was 14 and Heidi was 13, just like Melissa. Heidi and Melissa were in the same class, and though Samantha was initially wary of the Matten girl, Heidi and Melissa became fast friends. Soon, all three girls hung around together. It's not certain who was a bad influence on who, but it would seem that together the three of them were happy to get up to no good. They skipped school and even got into trouble for an attempted break-in at a house in the town. It was the first contact that Melissa had had with the police, and they described her in the interaction as scared. The two Dunbar girls, Samantha and Heidi, however, were described as bold as brass by the guardie that gave them a talking to. The Dunbar girls visited the Mahan home a few times, but for the most part, Melissa and Liana would go over to theirs to hang out. They'd be there after school and at the weekends, and they'd all go and do things together. The Dunbar's dad would take the girls for drives, and they'd visit beauty spots or go swimming. And that's how Melissa met Ronnie Dunbar. Ronnie Dunbar was from Sligo himself. He was born in 1964 and was one of a large family. In the mid-80s, he moved to London and there he married a woman named Angela Day. They had a daughter who they named Kirsty. But all was not well in that marriage and Ronnie ended up starting a relationship with the 15-year-old, 
who had babysat his little girl, Lisa Conroy. They were together for six or so years and had three daughters together. Lisa would later say that Dunbar was incredibly abusive towards her. Initially, when they'd started off, she'd been in the care of a children's home and was not treated well there. Ronnie was like a saviour to her and made her feel safe, but things took a turn. He was very into himself, she said, and he was always looking at himself in the mirror. He went to the gym a lot and took steroids and smoked cannabis. In a radio interview with Jerry Ryan, Lisa accused Dunbar of raping her and abusing her physically as well as emotionally through controlling her life. He'd assaulted her during each of her pregnancies, resulting in the loss of a child, Samantha's twin. He also had affairs. She said he was never violent towards the kids, but eventually she'd had enough and left. She'd been hit and strangled, and once kicked, causing a clot in her lung which nearly killed her. She fled, leaving the girls behind. She said that when she came back to get them, Ronnie wouldn't let them go, and she lost custody of them. Despite the fact that custody was decided in Ronnie's favour, he wasn't a terribly good dad, nor did he provide a good environment for the girls to grow up in. In the summer of 2000, there was trouble between himself and some local drug dealers. He maintained that he was trying to get them to stop selling. Whatever the cause, the dealers turned up at his door, and when he slammed it in their faces, they shot through it, striking Dunbar and Shirley, who was at the time nine years old. Her leg was injured. Dunbar gave evidence against the man who had shot him, which landed him and his family in the UK's version of the Witness Protection Program. They moved to Scotland and had new names. They were known now as the McManuses, which was Ronnie's mother's maiden name. That didn't last long, though. Ronnie couldn't keep his head down and kept getting into trouble by having fights with his new neighbours. He and his three girls were kicked out of the program. It was then that they moved back to his birthplace in Sligo. Dunbar's criminal history dated back to 1981 when he was up on charges of criminal damage, burglary, and larceny. Eventually, counts of assault, robbery with violence, theft, shoplifting, and drugs charges would be added to that. He had only one custodial sentence, though, in 1982, which was three months for stealing a car. As 2005 progressed and the new year came along, Liana Matten began to notice that her sister seemed to be getting close with their friend's father. They'd sit close together or lie on the couch together, but initially Leanne didn't see anything wrong with it. Dunbar was well-liked by his kid's friends, and he was still acting like a grown-up. He'd even banned Melissa from the house for a while, apparently for not acting properly. By the end of their first school year, Liana had made other friends, and spent less and less time with her sister and the Dunbar girls, whereas Melissa seemed to spend more and more time there. Near the end of July of 2006, the eldest man-child, Anthony, came to Sligo from England to stay for two weeks. Melissa, who usually shared a room with Yvonne, was moved into the parents' room, and Yvonne was relegated to the couch to allow Anthony and his wife and child to have that room. The day before Anthony was to leave, 
Mary Matten woke early in the morning to find the blow-up bed in her room empty. Melissa was gone, and she wasn't anywhere in the house. But Mrs. Matten knew exactly where she'd find her daughter. She woke Liana up from her bed in the box room, and the two of them went over to number 64, where the Dunbars lived. When Mary knocked, Samantha opened the door, but immediately shut it in the woman's face. After a few more minutes of knocking, Ronnie Dunbar came to the door, saying he'd only just gotten out of bed. He told Mary that her daughter wasn't there, but she went in looking anyway. Eventually, Melissa and Samantha were located in the shed in the back garden, in their nightgowns, giggling. Mary Matten gave her daughter a quick slap as she marched her out of the house and back to her own home. But the next morning, after Melissa had moved back into her own room when Anthony and his family had left, she was again missing from her bed. It was the 4th of August. Again, Mary Mahan had a strong suspicion of where her daughter had gone. Mary waited all day for Melissa to come back, but she didn't. Fed up and surely thinking that she wasn't going to storm around the estate looking for her runaway daughter again, she rang the guardie that evening to report Melissa missing. But, she said, she was pretty sure the girl had just run off to stay at a neighbor's house. And so she waited. And after a week with no sign of Melissa, Mary Matten called to the Dunbars once more. Ronnie answered the door, and he told Mary that Melissa wasn't there, but that he'd keep an eye out for her. Mary saw her daughter around the estate twice more after that once while walking towards town with her other daughters. She spotted Melissa sitting atop a garden shed. The girl had dyed her hair jet black and cut it short. A few days later, Melissa returned home. She showered and had dinner, and then a social worker called by the house to pick Melissa up and take her to the residential care home that she'd been living in. That was the last time that she saw her family. Melissa was last reported missing by her family on the 14th of September 2006. At that time, Mary Matten refused to give a statement to the guardie about her daughter or the circumstances under which she had not returned home. By that point, Melissa had made allegations of physical and sexual abuse against her parents, and as her daughter was under the care of the state at the time, Mary seemed to feel as if she had washed her hands of the responsibility towards her youngest daughter. Contact with the local health service board had started in March of 2006, when social worker Catherine Farrelly was referred to the Matten family. Melissa was having attendance problems at school, and Ms. Farrelly was there to try and help Melissa and her family come to some sort of solution and to work through the problems that they were having. They were to use the time over the summer holidays to come up with a plan that would help Melissa. Ms. Farrelly called Mrs. Matten on the 10th of August to arrange a home visit, and Mary managed to delay the arrangements until the 22nd of August. Of course, when Catherine arrived at the house and was told that Melissa hadn't been there since the 4th, she was startled. She was told that Mary had rang the guardie, but thought that Melissa was at a neighbour's house. Ms. Farrelly managed to convince Mary to go with her to Sligo Garda Station and speak to them again. When they arrived, they spoke with Garda Pat Conway, telling him that Mary had rang them on the 4th to report Melissa missing 
and that the mother suspected her daughter was at the Dunbar's house. Mrs. Matten was sent home, but Catherine and Garda Conway decided that they would try and get to the bottom of the situation. Garda Conway knew Ronnie Dunbar from way back and thought that if he went to speak with him, Ronnie would help him out. And so they called at number 64. Despite the fact that Dunbar and Garda Conway knew each other, Ronnie spoke mainly to Ms. Farrelly. He said that Melissa had been at his house on the 3rd, but he had no idea where she was now. She'd called from a payphone on the 4th, and Shirley said she'd seen the girl at an amusement arcade, but that was it. And so off Catherine and Pat went to speak with Shirley Dunbar, who had her own place by this stage. She had nothing to add, and so at 9pm, Ms. Farrelly and Garda Conway arrived back at the Dunbar's door. Ronnie told them that he was respected in certain groups, and would ask around to see if he could get in touch with Melissa, and if he did, he'd let them know. He told them that they were free to search the house if they wanted, but Garda Conway declined. By the end of their day searching for the girl, Catherine Farrelly felt that Ronnie Dunbar knew where Melissa was, or that she may even be in his house. The next day, Ronnie Dunbar turned up at Markovich House, where Catherine Farrelly worked. He said he'd made contact with Melissa and wanted Ms. Farrelly's number so that Melissa could call her later. After she spoke with Melissa, it seemed that she'd be willing to come to the office to speak with Catherine, but the next day, the 24th of August, Catherine got a call from Dunbar, saying Melissa had agreed she'd meet with her, but not at Markovich House. Ms. Farrelly would have to agree to be driven to a secret location by Dunbar. There were to be no guardee involved, and she wouldn't know the location of the meeting until Melissa rang Dunbar to tell him. Catherine was reluctant, but they needed to confirm that the girl was safe and well, and so she ended up being driven out to an isolated wood in Dunbar's small blue fiat to meet with Melissa. Samantha also went, and both she and her father greeted Melissa as if they hadn't seen her in years. Then Catherine and Melissa spoke. She was trying to convince the young girl that if she wouldn't go home, then she needed to take up a place in a care home. Melissa wanted to be fostered by the Dunbars and Ronnie's girlfriend, Angelique Sheridan, or failing that, the people she was staying with now, although she wouldn't tell Catherine who they were. Melissa told Catherine that her parents abused her, her father was molesting her, and her mother was violent. Both Melissa and Samantha described that slap to the face that Mary Matten had delivered when she found her daughter hiding in the Dunbar shed. Melissa told Catherine that she'd wet herself when her mother hit her, she was so afraid. But Melissa would agree to nothing at that meeting, and everyone went their separate ways. Both Catherine and Garda Conway spent that weekend trying to keep in touch with Melissa through Dunbar and convince her to go to the Lisnanogue residential unit. But Dunbar was beginning to complain that his role as go-between was impacting his life and causing problems for his business. By Monday, the 28th of August, Garda Conway and Catherine Farrelly were making plans to have an emergency care order made by the district court for Melissa, which would allow the guardie to locate her and remove her to the care home for her own safety and welfare. 
but Melissa turned up of her own accord at Lisnanog that day at around 4pm, along with Samantha and her father. Lisnanog was effectively an open halfway house for troubled teens in care. Boys and girls between the ages of 13 and 18 could find themselves staying in the four-bedroomed house, which had two staff on duty at all times. But they could sort of come and go. They weren't detained in the house or anything. That night, the social workers on duty agreed that Melissa could go visit the Dunbar's house, but asked that she be back in the unit by 10pm. So she was dropped off at 8pm by staff, and when they checked her room at half ten, Melissa was there. But over the next number of days, Melissa would leave the unit and go to the Dunbar home. She wanted to stay there, and had to be convinced back to the unit a number of times. She wasn't settling into the house, and she wasn't able to benefit from the presence of social workers and therapies. When she'd disappear, Dunbar and his family continued to be the go-betweens for the social workers and the guardee. On the 5th of September, a team meeting was held about Melissa's situation. It was decided that they needed her to spend time away from the Dunbar house, and that Ronnie would have to be less involved, otherwise Melissa would never be able to address her ongoing problems. It was decided that he would be asked to attend a placement planning meeting for Melissa the next day. The Mahans would not be at that meeting, but they had been informed of what was going on at every stage throughout the process for the previous few weeks. That said, they weren't terribly receptive about having Melissa back. Mary was angry about the accusation that her daughter had made about her husband, and she told Catherine Farrelly that Melissa wasn't welcome back in the house. In fact, she said the girl would get a hiding if she turned up, either from herself or from another family member. The social workers were also aware that similar accusations had been made against Frederick Matten by other siblings of Melissa while they were in the UK, though nothing had ever been proven and the last accusation was made in 1992, the year Melissa was born. Over Melissa's first two and a half weeks in Lisnanog, she was missing from the unit for eight nights. When she wasn't at the Dunbars, she was off with other teens, drinking and abusing solvents. She was once found having self-harmed with a razor blade and, and a piece of glass. There were 11 entries into the Garda Pulse system regarding Melissa, and the guardie had been called about her nearly every single day. Catherine Farrelly went to the courts to have a new order drawn up under Section 47 of the Child Care Act which allows the court to make any order deemed appropriate and necessary for the welfare and safety of a child. This one directed that there should be no contact between Melissa and Dunbar. It was granted on the 7th of September, but this only made Melissa worse. This wasn't working. It was decided that Melissa would have to go to a foster home. Gardie had to go retrieve the girl from the Caltra estate where she was hanging around with other teens, and she was brought back to Lisnanog. But she wouldn't get in the car with Catherine, who Melissa now felt was responsible for keeping her away from the people she considered her family. She was put into the back of a Garda car and driven to the home of Jane McCall, who was an experienced foster carer living in Kinloch. 
That night, Melissa had something to eat and watched television before heading up to spend her first night in her new home. But just after midnight, Jane heard her moving around and saw the girl standing outside with a pack of cigarettes in her nightgown. Melissa said she wanted to go to Sligo, and when Jane tried to guide her back into the house, Melissa screamed at her. Jane had been told that if Melissa was to run, to let her. And so, as the young girl disappeared into the night, barefoot and in a strange place, Jane went inside to ring the social workers and the guardie. Melissa didn't make it far, only down the road to a neighbour's house, the Ferguses, who were suspicious of her story of waking up not knowing how she got there and needing to get to Sligo. They knew there was a woman up the road who fostered kids. She gave them Dunbar's number, and while Mr. Fergus rang him, his wife rang the guardie. It was Catherine Farrelly who turned up at the neighbour's house and brought Melissa to Mount Shannon Garda Station. Catherine allowed Melissa to text Dunbar from the social worker's team phone to tell him that she was okay, and the next morning the two made their way back to Lisnanog to figure out a new plan. On the way there, they stopped to buy Melissa some fresh clothes, and then they stopped at a petrol station to get the girl a breakfast roll. When Catherine got back to the car, Melissa had been on her own mobile, and Catherine had heard a male voice on the other end. It was Dunbar. When they arrived at Lisnanog, Catherine left Melissa to change into her new clothes in the downstairs bathroom, while she went to her office to make some calls. When Catherine was done, she went looking for the girl. But Melissa had disappeared. It was half ten on the 14th of September, 2006. Catherine started searching and soon after got a call from Lisnanog to tell her that Melissa had been spotted by some employees on the road that went down to the Rathbrown Park estate. Two women, including the manager of the Lisnanog unit, had spotted her, but when they pulled over and called Melissa's name, the girl took off running. They said she was wearing a pink hoodie sweater and dark-coloured tracksuit bottoms. Gardie were informed that Melissa was missing yet again at noon that day. On the 15th, Catherine Farrelly and her colleagues checked in with the Gardie to see if there had been any reports of sightings of Melissa and also asked that someone might call round to the Dunbar's house and check to see if she was there. Sergeant Tom Kolsch called round to number 64 but got no answer at the door. As he turned to leave, he spotted a neighbour come out from the house next door. The Garda asked the man had he seen anyone in the house, but the man, who told him his name was Ronald McManus, said that there'd been no one there for a while. As this chat was ongoing, another Garda stopped and told the sergeant that he was in fact speaking to the man he was looking for. Ronnie apologised, explaining he often went by his mother's maiden name and that he'd moved into the house next door a week previously. Sergeant Kolsch searched number 63 with Dunbar's girls present and with his permission, but found nothing. The house was again searched four days later, 
and then again on the 6th of October. Ronnie Dunbar was beginning to get annoyed by all this. He was insistent that he hadn't seen Melissa, and also took the opportunity to give out that the appeal for information about Melissa didn't mention at all that she had been in care when she went missing. The guardee continued to make surprise visits to the house, though, despite the criticism and the frustrations it was causing. The Mattons were not at all helpful in the search. They were of the opinion that the health board were responsible, as Melissa had been in their care, and they refused to provide further information to the guardee, particularly concerning where in the UK Melissa had family living. There were sightings of Melissa, though. On the morning of the 21st of September, Maria Lloyd, a part-time employee at Lisnanogue, was on a bus on her way to work. She saw a girl in a pink hoodie running away from the Rathbrown Park estate and thought that it might be Melissa, though the girl's back was to her. She noted that there were black stains at the top of the hoodie, like Melissa had had on some of her tops from her black hair dye but Maria didn't get a look at the girl's face. Melissa's sister Yvonne told the guardie that she'd seen Melissa on the 10th of October 2006 with Dunbar in his car on the Bundorn Road. There were three other sightings in October and then finally another in March 2007. Ronnie Dunbar blamed the Mattons for Melissa's disappearance, them and the authorities who had failed Melissa. They were the ones who had let her down, and now they were turning on Ronnie, acting suspicious of him and calling by his house when, really, he'd been the only one who was actually looking out for the girl. These complaints continued, along with the periodic renewal of the appeal for information relating to the 14-year-old's disappearance. In November of 2006, a reconstruction of Melissa's last movements was made for Crime Call, in the hopes that this would lead to more information. And although there were various sightings of the girl from Sligo all the way down to Cork, there was no real sign of her. She couldn't be tracked down. Ports and airports were given her name and picture to be on the lookout in case she left Ireland to go back to the UK. Melissa's 15th birthday came and went, and then the year anniversary of her disappearance. In renewed appeals, her mother Mary told the media of a quiet girl who liked country music. Then another appeal was made in the run-up to the second Christmas that Melissa was missing. But less than a month later, all of that was to change. On the 31st of January 2008, Shirley Dunbar was living with her boyfriend and the father of her baby, Danny Linnett, at 69 Rathbrown Park, just down the road from her father and youngest sister. By that stage, Samantha had actually moved in with her, after being kicked out of the house by Ronnie a few times. The two of them were on the phone to their mother, Lisa Conroy, in the UK, and were in the middle of a heated argument. Samantha had spent the previous Christmas with Lisa, and she wasn't pleased with her daughter's behaviour. Samantha got very upset, and yelled at them, quote, I'll tell you why I'm like this, end quote. Shirley hung up the phone and sat across from her sister. Samantha then asked her never to tell anyone what she was about to say, that she would get into serious trouble with the guardie. And that's when Samantha told her that their dad had killed Melissa. Melissa. 
Shortly after that, Danny Linnet returned to the house. He'd been at his mother's but had gotten a voicemail from Lisa. She was angry with Samantha and said she wanted Shirley and Danny to know what Samantha had been saying about them behind their backs and had left it in the message. But when he got back home, the two girls were in bits. Both were upset and had been visibly crying. He asked what was going on and eventually Samantha blurted out that Ronnie had killed Melissa. After the initial shock, she told him the story. She said that at about 5pm back in September 2006, about a week after Melissa had run away from Lisnanog for the last time, Samantha had come home from Youthreach. Heidi had opened the door for her but had tried to stop her from coming in. She immediately went upstairs and saw her dad, fully clothed, on top of Melissa with his arm around her neck. He jumped up when she came into the room and Samantha had tried to rouse her friend, but it was no use. Then Ronnie came back into the room with a sleeping bag. He put Melissa into it and the three of them drove to the River Bonnet. As Danny was taking all this in, Shirley added that at the time Melissa had gone missing, she'd been pregnant. She told Danny that she'd been with the girl herself when she took the pregnancy test and that it had been positive. Danny decided to call the police. Garda Charles Jordan and Detective Garda Polly McDonough arrived at the house at 10pm and were let in by Danny who brought them to the sitting room where the two girls were. Samantha looked to be in a trance, staring off into space, and Shirley was upset, with makeup all over her face from crying. When Samantha was finally convinced to speak, she said that Ronnie had killed Melissa. The three were then taken to Sligo Garda Station. Shirley, at the time, was only 17, and Samantha 16, and so social workers and priests were called for the girls to be with them, when they gave their statements. They were separated for their interviews and Samantha spoke with them until 4am. The next day she agreed to get into a Garda car and direct them along the route that her father had taken from the estate to the River Bonnet, where he dumped Melissa's body. Quickly, the Subaqua team was assembled and they began the difficult and painstaking task of searching the silt and mud of the riverbed and bank. They first searched the area that had been pointed out as the dump site by the girl, and when that turned up nothing, they slowly made their way downstream towards Loch Gill. Days went by when the search had to be halted due to heavy rain and adverse weather conditions. But finally, on February 11th, at about 2pm, a member of the team put his hand to a piece of bone, which was part of a skull. Soon, other skeletal pieces were identified, and the place where Melissa's body had been washed downstream had been found. Also found nearby on the shore were a nightgown, a man's tie, and a torn sleeping bag. As news got out that the Subaqua unit had been dispatched to Sligo and were searching the river and the lake for a body, media interest was piqued and while the search and then the investigation was ongoing before any charges had been laid, they were free to print whatever they liked about these obviously newsworthy events. Unusually, when the media went to Sligo and began asking questions, they found that people were willing to talk. 
more specifically, members of the Dunbar family were willing to talk. Anonymously, of course. The first article to appear was by Paul Williams and was a two-page spread in the Sunday World. Shirley had told him everything that she had told the Gardee, and the full story ran alongside a picture of the Dunbar family with their faces blurred out. She told the journalist that her father had been having a sexual relationship with Melissa, that she'd been pregnant, and that her younger sister had seen her dad strangle their friend and then dump the body. Papers also said that Ronnie was a sex offender. But Shirley wasn't the only one to talk to the press. Ronnie Dunbar felt the need to put his side of the story on the record too, and so spoke to a number of journalists himself. The first was Jerry McLaughlin with the Sligo Weekender, which appeared on February 12th. The article, it said, was an interview with the self-proclaimed main suspect. He, firstly, set the record straight that he was not a sex offender. Dunbar said he had criminal charges, yes, but he wasn't a pervert. He placed the blame for Melissa's disappearance firmly with the health service and her family who had failed her. He said he'd gone out of the way to try and help Melissa. She thought of him as a father and had called him dad a few times. Rather than being a suspect, Dunbar anonymously told the paper that he had acted as a facilitator, trying to get Melissa to go with the social workers. But she was becoming more and more wild and acting out. Dunbar also threw suspicion at his daughter, Samantha, saying that Heidi had told him that Samantha had hit Melissa over the head after an argument. The authorities were just making him a scapegoat for their negligence. Ronnie also spoke to a journalist working for the local radio station, Ocean FM, called Niall Delaney. He agreed to have his interview recorded on the promise that if any of it was aired, his voice would be disguised. Again, he said how he had tried to work with the health service and had informed them every time Melissa ran away and turned up at his house. He criticised the employees at List Nanog for not going after Melissa when they'd seen her after she'd run away from the unit. Ronnie also set up a call between this reporter and his youngest daughter, Heidi. On that call, which Delaney recorded, Heidi told him that Samantha had hit Melissa over the head with a rock after a fight on a camping trip. Apparently, Samantha thought that Melissa had stolen her stash of cocaine. Heidi said she'd seen the whole thing but ran away with fright when Melissa fell to the ground. Heidi remembered that this had happened around the time that Melissa had disappeared and said that she'd never seen the girl again after that. The audio was never aired and later Delaney handed it over to the guardee. That wasn't the end to media attention focused on a still anonymous Dunbar, however. Paul Williams turned up on Ronnie's doorstep. Initially, Dunbar was mad at him, but eventually he invited Williams into a sitting room and was happy to go over his accusations of neglect against the Mattons and the HSC, and said that Shirley had been lying in Williams' interview with her. She was mad, he said, because he had started a new relationship and had also kicked her out of the house. And anyway, he thought Samantha was likely responsible for whatever had happened with Melissa. This time, he went so far as to say he'd never come to the attention of the Gardaí or the police in the UK 
and didn't have any criminal record of any sort. The media speculation and the courting of the press by members of the Dunbar family came to an end finally on the 10th of April 2008 when Ronnie Dunbar was arrested. The Gardaí had spent the previous two months awaiting DNA results which confirmed that the body that had been located in Loch Gill was indeed that of Melissa Matten. They had also been quietly investigating what had been going on in Melissa's final months and had accessed her mobile phone records, which showed that she had been in contact with Ronnie Dunbar the day she was last reported missing. In fact, both Melissa and Dunbar's phones had been accessed. Over 18% of the calls made from Dunbar's phone from July to September 2006 were to Melissa, compared to only 7% to his girlfriend, Angelique Sheridan. 52% of the text messages were to the girl, with only 21% to Angelique. It was discovered that there were two text messages sent from Melissa's phone to Dunbar as Catherine Farrelly was getting Melissa food, and three more between 9.45 and 10.45 that day. Dunbar rang Melissa just before 11 and followed that up with a text message, which she'd responded to. He called her again at 10.52. It was about that time she'd gone missing. That Thursday in April, Ronnie was pulled over by Gardee. By this stage, he was driving an old black BMW, which he had traded his Fiat to a friend for. At 11am, he was informed that he was being brought to the station on suspicion of involvement in the murder of Melissa Mahan. A few hours later, search warrants were executed on the side-by-side houses at Rathbrowan Park. Both were declared crime scenes, and Dunbar's six pit bulls were removed from number 63 before the search commenced. There were some fairly strange things found in the houses. There were old boxes with holes cut in them, with binoculars inside at the upstairs windows, which seemed to have been used to keep a watch on who was outside the house. And there was also a bed which had a large hole cut into it, giving access to the box frame on the bottom. The space was large enough for a slight girl to have hidden in. When Ronnie arrived at Sligo Garda Station, he was uncooperative with the guardie and got progressively worse throughout. He told police that he had been made a target by the press and that if they wanted to know what his daughters had said, they should talk to them themselves. He repeated the story that he had just been doing his best to get Melissa help and said that they had a father-daughter relationship. When asked about his apparent sexual relationship with Melissa, he said that was all nonsense. By the end of his questioning, he was refusing to comment on any questions asked. In any event, he was brought to a special sitting of the district court and formally charged with the murder of Melissa Mahan. He was then remanded in custody to await his trial. On the 21st of April 2009, six men and six women were sworn in as a jury before Mr Justice Barry White. They had heard the charges read against Dunbar, one of murder and one of threats to kill his own daughter, who had by this point taken her mother's last name instead of his. Isabel Kennedy, senior counsel, and Sean Gillan, barrister-at-law, were for the state, and Dunbar's defence team was Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, 
who was assisted by Joseph Barnes. The opening statement was made by Ms. Kennedy, where she went through what was expected of the jury in terms of their understanding of the law and a summary of the case she intended to put before them for the state. Dunbar had refused to go over the book of evidence with his lawyers and so throughout the trial was writing furious notes to his solicitor about his observations of the evidence that he'd heard. He and his legal team attempted at all points to question the reliability of the evidence and witnesses presented, forcing the state to prove their case. The only fact that the defence stipulated to was that an area around Loch Gill had been preserved for a time by Gardie as a crime scene. There was going to be a fight about every fact, every detail. The trial began as usual with Gardie presenting photographs of the scenes involved both from the houses and from the river and lake, as well as maps of those areas and plans and layouts of the houses. Forensic evidence was offered relating to the search for and the recovery of the body from Loch Gill. 65% of a skeleton was recovered, along with a sleeping bag that had a large tear on the side and a nightgown. From the remnants, it was likely that the skeleton it was likely that the skeleton belonged to a teenaged girl. The facial bones had not yet fused, but the three parts of the pelvis had. There were signs of a lot of animal activity on the majority of the bones. Five teeth were recovered, along with the lower jaw, and a forensic odontologist compared those teeth with the dental records of Melissa Matten. Despite lacking the majority of teeth, he was able to conclude that there was a high level of probability that these were the missing girl's remains, both from the dental work on two of the teeth and the shape of the unerupted molars in the lower jaw. One of the teeth was later used to extract a DNA sample, which was compared to blood drawn from Mary and Frederick Matten it was concluded that the remains were of their natural-born daughter. The body was definitely that of Melissa. Detective Sergeant Podrick Scanlon, who was the officer to make Dunbar's arrest in April 2006, told the court that in no uncertain terms, it had not been part of the Gardies' plan to put pressure on Dunbar by delaying his arrest and allowing the story to play out in the media. He categorically stated that the delay in the arrest had been caused by awaiting the results of the DNA tests and the result of a thorough investigation on the part of the Gardie. After that, the first of a long line of witnesses who knew Dunbar took to the stand. Angelique Sheridan had met Dunbar and his daughters in Sligo Town in the summer of 2006, and they had quickly started dating. She told the court that Dunbar had told her that Melissa was being abused by her parents and that he was trying to help her. But Angelique noticed some strange things that had happened. The first was when all the girls and Dunbar were over at her apartment. Angelique got on relatively well with Dunbar's daughters, especially Heidi, who nearly clung to the woman. But things were a bit more tense with Melissa, who she sensed was maybe a bit possessive of Dunbar. This particular evening, while Dunbar was out of the room, Melissa told Angelique that she was Cleopatra reincarnated and that Dunbar was her lord 
and that they had been married and in love in a past life and would be reunited again. She also said that demons and spirits were at work in their lives and that Ronnie had the power to fight them. Understandably, Angelique was a bit concerned by this outburst and told her then-boyfriend about what Melissa, and to a lesser degree Samantha, had been going on about. Dunbar brushed it off. He said that these were just teenagers with strange beliefs and nothing to be overly concerned about. When Angelique told Dunbar that she thought Melissa had feelings for the older man and acted like they were in a relationship, Dunbar told her he knew that that was an issue in the past. In fact, he'd banned Melissa from coming over to the house for what he called these quote-unquote notions. He assured her, though, that Melissa had moved past that and now saw him as a father figure only, and he was just doing his best to protect her from her abusive family. She then recalled for the court that she remembered Dunbar taking a call one evening and heard a girl's voice on the other end. It seemed urgent, and Ronnie had jumped up quickly to leave. When he came back, he told Angelique that he had had to go perform an exorcism on Melissa, that she had been possessed by demons. Angelique admitted to the court that she knew Melissa was hiding in the Dunbar's house and had even participated in the attempts to cover up her location. She was the one who had driven Melissa to the picnic table in Slish Woods to meet with Catherine Farrelly, although she told the court that she had thought that the guardie would be present at the meeting too. Both she and the Dunbar's eldest daughter Shirley had warned Dunbar that he shouldn't be so involved with Melissa and that he certainly should not go on hiding her in the house, that he was going to get himself in trouble over it. Ms Sheridan told the court that Ronnie had said to her that he wouldn't go to jail over Melissa, that he'd kill her and dump her body before he allowed that to happen. During cross-examination, in response to a question put to her, Angelique said in open court that Heidi had told her that Melissa was pregnant and that Ronnie was the father. The prosecution had been careful to skirt this information. It was hearsay and not allowed in court, but the defence had let it in. Grehan defending had nothing left to do but ask why it was that Angelique had not reported any of this to the guardie, not only while it was going on, but when it became apparent that Melissa had gone missing. Angelique explained to the jury that she and Dunbar had been in the process of splitting up by early September 2006. By that point, she was frightened of him, and all that she knew for sure was that there were some weird things going on. She put it all to the back of her mind and carried on, hoping that her gut feeling that something wasn't right was misplaced. So she didn't go to the guardie until after Dunbar's arrest, because she was frightened and she didn't want to be involved in the whole mess. Another of Ronnie Dunbar's former girlfriends also took to the stand to give evidence. Ruth Nooney had moved with her child to the Rathbrowan Park estate in July of 2007, and shortly after had met Ronnie, Heidi, Shirley and Donnie and Samantha. Quickly, she and Ronnie started seeing each other. She had come from an abusive relationship, and Ronnie made her feel strong. She would go to the gym with him and go on long walks in Slish Woods. Once or twice, they stopped to look out on Loch Gill. Ruth also told the court that Ronnie had some strange beliefs. He thought that there was a new world order coming and that he would be king of the battlefield when it came. 
His obsession with the gym and fitness was to ensure that he was strong enough to fight demons when the time came. He emphasized that he could only bring strong people who he trusted when the time came, and so Ruth had been keen to work out alongside him. As the one-year anniversary of Melissa's disappearance approached, Ronnie decided it was time to tell his new girlfriend about the girl. He sat Ruth down and explained that he had been looking after a young girl who was being abused by her family. She had gone missing and the family had moved away from the estate, but as the anniversary approached, he thought she should know that she might hear people talk, and the rumours that had spread about him might come back up. People might say that he'd had a sexual relationship with her, and that he was somehow responsible for the girl going missing, but Ronnie told her it was all lies. Melissa had likely run away to England to get away from her mother and father once and for all, and Ruth believed him. She also described her relationship with Ronnie's daughters. Heidi had been very close with her father, and seemed to Ruth to be joined to him by the hip. She got on very well with the youngest Dunbar. Samantha was another story, she said, though. They'd fought, and Samantha had gotten violent with her, even going so far as to kick her in the stomach while Ruth was pregnant, and threatening to, quote, kick the baby out of her, end quote. The couple had broken up in 2007 after Ruth had been called to a meeting with the health service executive. They'd had a row after the meeting, and Ruth had left him, without even gathering her things. Dunbar's daughters also all gave evidence at the trial, and in fact played a pivotal role in the prosecution's case against him. The eldest, Shirley, now going by Conroy, told the court that she'd been aware that Melissa spent much of her time at her father's house, and that she and her younger sisters were skipping school, causing trouble, and had gotten suspended. She knew in August 2006, when Melissa was missing for three weeks, that she'd been hiding at her father's house. She'd seen her there. She didn't think it was appropriate, but there wasn't anything she was able to do. Ronnie had told her that Melissa was being abused by her parents, and that's why she spent so much time with them. Shirley said she remembered Samantha, Heidi, and Melissa had messed around with a Ouija board, and that afterwards, Heidi had told her that their father had said that the girls had let demons and spirits into the house, and that these demons were there for Melissa. The younger two Dunbars, who had also taken their mother's name at this point, gave evidence by video link. This is most usual in cases where the witness is a minor, under 18, as Heidi was at this time, but the judge heard that Samantha suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, and that having to appear in the court in person would be detrimental to her health. The defense offered that her father was willing to wait in the holding cells while Samantha gave her evidence, but Mr. Justice Barry White thought the video link was more appropriate. So, for both Samantha and Heidi's evidence, the court would move from Court 2, which was a large space off the grand round hall of the Four Courts building, upstairs to Court 16. It was a much smaller room. Dunbar had to sit in the witness box, and Press and Gardee were forced to stand in the door to hear what was going on. Samantha seemed confident, though, while she described her childhood, moving to Sligo, and meeting the Mahan girls in school. She said she'd become aware that her father was having a sexual relationship with Melissa over the summer of 2006, because Melissa had told her, and her father had confirmed it. 
She described how Melissa had run away from her parents and hidden in the house for three weeks that summer, and that her father, Dunbar, had arranged Melissa's meeting with Catherine Farrelly. Dunbar had told Samantha to greet Melissa when she saw her, like they hadn't seen each other in ages. But they were all staying at Angelique Sheridan's flat at the time. She went on to describe how Dunbar had told Melissa to agree to go to the care home so that he and Angelique could fight to get her out and have her live with them, and then, despite all that, encouraged and hid Melissa in their old house while she was meant to be at Lisnanogue. Samantha recalled that in early September, her father had been in hospital for a small operation and Melissa had run away from the care home. They'd had a party at the Dunbar house with a few other teens, girls and boys, staying at the house. Ronnie was furious when he found out, and when he saw one of the boys, that he suspected Melissa had slept with, standing outside Lisnanog, he grabbed him and threw him up against the wall. They traded threats before staff intervened. Ms. Kennedy then asked her to tell the court if she remembered back to the days around the time Melissa had gone missing. Samantha said she could. The last day she saw Melissa alive was a Thursday, the 21st. The runaway had been sleeping in the old house next door for a few days, but the night before, Dunbar allowed Melissa to stay in number 63. Samantha had lent her an old nightgown of hers, yellow, with frills and a Beauty and the Beast motif on the front. That morning, Samantha had left to go to Youthreach and returned home at about 5pm. When she walked in the door, she saw Heidi sitting in the living room crying and smoking a cigarette. Heidi told her not to go upstairs, so of course that's exactly what Samantha did. She went up and then opened the door to her father's room. She saw Dunbar and Melissa on the bed, lying next to each other, clothed. At first, Samantha thought her father was hugging the girl, but soon she realised that his arm was around her neck. Melissa seemed to be struggling to breathe. Heidi came to the room and sat in the corner crying while Dunbar got up. Samantha said she tried to resuscitate Melissa, but she stopped when she realised the girl was no longer breathing at all. When Dunbar came back, he had with him a sleeping bag and a necktie, and he put Melissa into the bag and tied the open end up. Then he ordered Heidi and Samantha downstairs, where they helped him get Melissa's body into the boot of the Fiat. They all drove out to a place on the River Bonnet that they'd been before a few times, and Samantha helped her father throw the body out into the river. Dunbar stood watching while Melissa's body sank in the fast-running water, and as the three headed back to the car, Dunbar threatened them, saying that they had helped, and if they told anyone about what had just happened, he'd kill them, or else they'd all go to prison. He told them that they were accessories to murder. When Dunbar got back to the house, he went about his normal routine. Samantha told the court that she, Heidi and Dunbar went to a men's football practice that Ronnie went to weekly. Over the next few days, he bleached his bed and mattress, burned all the matching sleeping bags that were left, and basically eradicated any evidence that Melissa had been in the house at all. On cross-examination, Samantha dismissed the stories that Heidi had told in her statements to the guardee. They had differed greatly from her own. She told the court that Heidi was her father's favourite, that she was in love with their father, and that he was controlling, and Heidi would do whatever he asked of her. 
The youngest Dunbar had just been protecting their father, she said. Samantha was telling the truth, and Heidi was lying. Heidi gave her evidence just after Samantha, and in the same manner. On top of that, she was not named in press coverage due to her age at the time. Again, like Samantha, she appeared quite confident and self-assured on the stand, but she had given a number of conflicting statements in the previous year about what had happened to Melissa. She was a bit of a wild card, and no one could be sure of what she was actually going to say. In the end, she took the jury through her recollections of the days leading up to Melissa's death. She said that she discovered her father had been hiding Melissa in the house next door, and that she'd been angry about it. She thought Dunbar would get in trouble for it, and Heidi told him that he should send the girl back to Lisnanog, but he ignored her. On Wednesday the 20th of September, she recalled that Heidi had spent the night in their house with them. She'd gone to sleep downstairs on the sofa with a sleeping bag, but Heidi said that when she woke up the next morning, she'd seen Melissa asleep in her father's bed. Later that afternoon, she'd walked into her father's room, and the two of them were on the bed. Her dad said something to her about keeping Melissa sweet, and she went downstairs. She was upset, but she wasn't sure if she was crying at that point or not. And then Samantha came home. Heidi recalled that she had told Samantha to go upstairs, and had gone up herself. They'd seen her father and Melissa lying on the bed, and Heidi thought she immediately knew that something was wrong and Melissa was hurt. She said that her dad had gotten the necktie and then tied it around Melissa's neck before smothering her with a pillow. Dunbar had ordered Samantha downstairs to get the sleeping bag off the couch. Then he'd put Melissa in it, and the three of them had gone to dump the body. She accepted that she had told numerous versions of the events that afternoon, that Samantha had hit Melissa with a frying pan, that Samantha had struck the other girl with a rock while camping, that all three of the Dunbars had partaken in strangling the girl. But she said the reason she gave these statements was that she was young and was under the sway of her father. He had planted ideas in her head of what to say and had made her believe that that was what had really happened. He also threatened to kill himself by hanging or to inject himself with caustic soda. Heidi was insistent that the version she gave the court now was the truth, that the differences between what she had said and Samantha had sworn to basically just came down to their different perceptions and their young age, and said that their father had manipulated her and frightened her. After 21 days of evidence, the state had concluded its case. The jury was escorted out for Mr. Grehan to make an application to the judge that there was insufficient evidence to convict his client. He argued that there were too many inconsistencies between Heidi and Samantha's evidence for them to be considered reliable, particularly Heidi. And if Samantha's account was taken on its own, there was no indication whatsoever that Dunbar had been violent or intended to cause harm to Melissa. At best, if you accepted this version, he said, manslaughter would be more appropriate. But Mr Justice White said that it was up to the jury to decide what evidence they accepted and rejected at this point. Mr Grehan told the court that the defence had no evidence to present. All that remained now were the closing statements and the judge's instructions. 
Isabel Kennedy reminded the jury that there had been evidence of an inappropriate sexual relationship between Melissa and the then 44-year-old Dunbar, and that his daughters had said he had hidden the victim in the house and killed her before dumping the body in the river. That the evidence they'd heard from Dunbar's daughters and his girlfriends showed Dunbar was a controlling man and that he'd threatened to kill Melissa. This had been murder. Grehan told the jury that he could understand if they had an instinct that his client was guilty. He said Dunbar often refused advice and sat before them in tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt and covered in muscles and tattoos. His client had not taken on board changes that would rehabilitate himself in their eyes. He presented just as he was. He had strange beliefs. He was anti-authority and sometimes belligerent. All that aside, how his client looked did not make him actually guilty. The state, Grian said, wanted the jury to rely on the testimony of Dunbar's daughters and ex-girlfriends, which were at variance with one another to such a degree that they were patently unreliable. They proved nothing. And that had been the prosecution's sole job, to prove his client guilty. They had offered no evidence or explanation for what had happened in September of 2006, nor were they required to do so. It was up to the state to prove that Dunbar had murdered Melissa Matten, and it was Grehan's contention that they had not done that. Mr. Justice Barry White then gave the jury instructions, and explained that for the jury to find Dunbar guilty of murder, they must find that he had the intent to kill or seriously injure Melissa Matten and that if they found that there was no intent, but that Dunbar had in fact killed her, they may find him guilty of manslaughter. But they must find that the evidence proved beyond a reasonable doubt that this was the case. He also warned them that Dunbar's daughters, Samantha and Heidi both, were accessories after the fact, and as such, they could be considered accomplices, and therefore their testimony was to be approached with caution. The jury of six men and six women retired to consider their verdict. It was 2.45 on Monday the 25th of May 2009. They deliberated for the rest of the day and the next, while they also reviewed the testimony that had been given by Samantha Dunbar. Just before Mr. Justice White was going to give directions for a majority verdict, the jury announced that they had made their decision. On the count of murder, Dunbar was found not guilty, but guilty of manslaughter. And he was also found not guilty of threats to kill. Mr. Grehan indicated his client did not wish to seek reports and so on to present before sentencing, and that they were ready to proceed, but Barry White told him that he needed to consult with the sentencing guidelines for manslaughter relating to a 14-year-old child. They would all convene again on the 6th of July to present their arguments to the judge and for the purposes of sentencing. Ms. Kennedy brought the court through the facts of the case that day and then told Mr. Justice White that she intended on reading a victim impact statement from Mary Mahon. The judge, in an unusual move, said that he thought that this statement would be disingenuous and then questioned the Detective Inspector Garda present about the Matten's cooperation, or lack thereof, with the Garda investigation into the missing girl. Inspector O'Reilly confirmed that the Matten family had not been forthcoming with information about their daughter 
and had quote-unquote drip-fed them information. Nevertheless, Isabel Kennedy read Mary Mahon's statement. She said that her family had gone through a lot due to Melissa's disappearance and death, and that she and her daughters Liana and Yvonne had variously harmed themselves or attempted suicide. Interestingly, the case of Wayne O'Donoghue was brought up. He too had been convicted of manslaughter and was sentenced to four years by the trial judge. Mr. Grehan argued that the cases were similar, given that there was no real way to know the exact circumstances of death in either case, but Ms. Kennedy was quick to point out that Wayne O'Donoghue had admitted his guilt and shown remorse. That was certainly not the case with Dunbar. Justice White adjourned the proceedings until the end of that week for him to consider what sentence he would impose. Speaking to a court filled with Gardee and reporters that Friday, and attended this time only by Liana Mahan from the victim's family, the judge said that he had to take into account a number of factors when sentencing Dunbar. The age disparity between Dunbar and Melissa, the fact she was vulnerable and in the care of the HSC, the fact that the manner in which the body was disposed of had served to frustrate later investigation of the crime, and the fact that Dunbar had engaged in a cover-up of the crime and events surrounding it. He also noted that Dunbar had an extensive criminal history, showed a total lack of remorse, and provided no mitigation whatsoever for his actions. With all that in mind, Mr Justice White announced that in this case, a sentence of life was appropriate for the verdict of manslaughter. In 2011, Dunbar sought leave to appeal against his conviction and sentence. His lawyers argued that there had been insufficient evidence to convict, that the trial judge had erred in relation to a number of areas of law and had been biased against him, and that the evidence presented was inherently unreliable. However, the Court of Criminal Appeal refused leave to appeal on all ten points raised. That wasn't the last time that Dunbar found himself in court, though. In early 2012, he found himself once more in the dock, this time accused of raping his youngest daughter, Heidi. She described for the court how the abuse had begun when she was only eight years old, and how, at the time, all she wanted was to feel loved by him. Instead, she had suffered traumatic abuse. Heidi later said she felt guilty for introducing her friend, Melissa, to her father, and that if she hadn't, Melissa might still be alive. Again, Dunbar was found guilty, and was sentenced on this charge to 15 years. After the court case, he continued to protest his innocence, and so Heidi waived her anonymity to tell her story, not only of her abuse, but of the brutal death of her friend, Melissa Mahan. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or tell a friend. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This week has been a difficult one for some friends of mine, and I'd like to ask that anyone who may feel inclined to do so might donate something to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the US or the Samaritans if you're in the UK, Ireland or Australia. It's easy to donate to any of them through their websites 
and a few euros or pounds or dollars will make a difference to someone who needs to hear a voice at the other end of a line. Remember that these lines are open to anyone who is in need of them. In the US, the number is 1-800-273-8255. Ireland and the UK, it's 116-123. And in Australia, it's 135-247. If you need help, please reach out. If you can help, please go to their websites and give what you can. Thank you. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. Mm. Despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime, like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I... <laughs> I can make it happen for <laughs> you. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you <laughs> So beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbor suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by... An owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Again, so judgy. Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found.